0: Welcome to the Milestones Motivation and Money Podcast, hosted by Angel Radcliffe. Tune in as we discuss finances, success stories, and inspiring vibes that will help nurture growth. Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode, we'll be speaking with Dina Jetty. She's the founding partner of Five Funds, a unique commercial real estate firm that specializes in curating conservative opportunities for investors. Vina brings a dynamic perspective to targeting, acquiring, managing, and operating assets using best practices combined with cutting-edge technologies.
1: Vina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I am excited to have you here and have this conversation about real estate investments and all of the amazing things that you are doing. So how about you give us a little
1: bit of a background on you and how you got into real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the founder of Vive Funds, and we're a a commercial real estate company. We focus on Class B multifamily assets with a value add component. Right now, our portfolio has a little over 400 million. We're actually set to cross 500 million this month. So, really excited about that milestone. I got started, I actually, I took the shortcut in. I come from a real estate family. Uh, my mom is actually a really successful real estate investor and built the portfolio out for her and my dad. I kind of took what my mom had instilled in us growing up and I worked in corporate America in the real estate world for a few years. Ultimately, I ended up leaving to start my own company with the support of my husband and have taking what my mom has done and really taking it to that kind of that quote unquote next level, if you will. Awesome. So that sounds amazing. Now,
0: people who are listening, you mentioned a portfolio and people who are listening may be wondering what do you consider a portfolio? So I want to get right into it and help people understand what it is when you actually have different assets and properties and how do you classify them? So one person that owns a home would that be considered a part of their portfolio or are we talking about something bigger?
1: Yeah, so I think that you can have a portfolio defined as different things. So when you're talking about an individual portfolio, you could be talking about your primary home and maybe rental homes that you have Uh, When I'm talking about our company's portfolio or my portfolio, I'm talking about our multifamily assets that are in the portfolio. So, if you think of it kind of like a stock portfolio, right, you might own a small piece of a thousand different stocks. That would be your stock portfolio. So, within the regards of multifamily and Vi's portfolio and my portfolio, it's just different multifamily assets. So we have about, oh gosh, I'd have to count probably somewhere over 15 or 16 large multifamily assets in our portfolio, meaning over a hundred doors on each asset.
0: Awesome. I want to get back into more of starting the actual company because real estate is a very interesting industry. You can do so many things in real estate. You can be a broker, you can be an agent, you can be an investor a developer. And since I know you're more so on the investing standpoint, how does something like this come together?
1: Yeah, so I'm more on the investment side. So, what we do is we're actually owner operators of our assets, but we operate funds. What we do is we raise capital, we find the asset, we buy the asset, we execute the business plan, and then we exit and create a return for our investors. So, historically, we've always had double digit returns for our investors on our deals. But basically, what I do as a sponsor of a deal is I handle everything from cradle to grave. So, I'm an A to Z solution. For passive investors who might want to have multifamily in their portfolio, but one, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the experience, they don't have the time, or they just don't want to be doing what I'm doing. So instead, they take a passive position in the deal and they allow somebody who is like myself, a sponsor of the deal to run the deal from A to Z.
0: So for someone listening and they're like, okay, well, so far, this sounds good. Portfolios and investors and raising capital everyone has like some idea of creating passive income or another stream of income. I am very big on having multiple streams of income. And in a previous season of my podcast, we had an episode called multiple streams of income are sexy. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) even like working in corporate, several people will use their corporate income to bootstrap a business or bootstrap some idea. And real estate is really at the high end of list of those ideas, whether it's, buying a rental property, investment property, buying land for someone who wants to maybe partner with a coworker, friend, family member, and get into this investment side, similar to what you're doing, there has to be some sort of protocols in place. So how did you obtain the knowledge to understand? I know you mentioned your family is involved in real estate, but how does that all come together? Do you need an attorney? Do you need to start the business together, or I'm sure that there's some intricate details, especially when we're
1: talking about capital and, and investors. You definitely need a lot of attorneys. So we work with several different attorneys from start to finish on our deals. Primarily the type of attorney you want to reach out to first is an SEC attorney. So I've been working with Nick McGrew from Polymath Legal. He's based out of LA. I've been working with him for over a decade now. So he's an SEC attorney. So he knows securities law very well, because what we're doing is we're actually selling an unregistered security. So we do have oversight from the SEC in our business. So the capital raising side, everything kind of runs through him and we get the okay from him. After that, we also work with transaction attorneys. We also work with lenders attorneys. So depending on which stage of the asset we are in, we will be hiring attorneys. So As an example, right now, the current deal we're working on is $78.3 million on the purchase price. It's 344 units in Atlanta, Georgia. We have multiple attorneys on this. So we start with Nick, who handles all the SEC registrations and all of the blue sky laws, et cetera. And then we have another team of attorneys that works on negotiating the purchase agreement. They work on negotiating the lending debt, the terms on the debt. So we have various attorneys at different standpoint. So it's not quite as simple as getting together with a friend and creating a company because it does require significant risk capital. So when we go into any one of our deals, we're putting up anywhere from one to $3 million hard day one, sometimes even more than that, depending on the deal. So it takes a little bit more than just deciding to start a business to do what I do at the scale that I'm doing it, but you certainly could get into buying a small duplex or a fourplex with a friend with a lot less red tape to cross. And if you're not raising capital from investors, you probably don't need an SEC attorney in that regard. Oh, wow. It sounds like it's
0: very intricate details and a lot of attorneys, a lot of contracts you'd be reading. And I really would like to get into the small scale versus large scale. And I I would love to ask your opinion because these seem to be million dollar deals In my mind, (laughs) I'm like, this is like a lot when you're talking about a 300-unit apartment complex, right? So, on a small scale versus a large scale, what type of investments does your company go after, and what do you consider a small-scale investment?
1: So, we typically don't do small-scale investments at this stage in the company. This deal that we're working on right now is 78.3. The deal we did prior to this, actually during COVID, was 80 million. So. We don't necessarily do anything on the small scale side. I would say the smallest transaction we would potentially look at today, it's tough to say, but probably around 50 million would be our smallest transaction we would consider. We may consider something a little bit smaller, but there'd have to be a really compelling reason for us to take it on. So, I I mean, I think it's all relative, right? So if you talk to somebody in the single family world, anything, even a couple of million could be considered a large scale project. But if you're talking to someone in the multifamily world, a couple million is definitely on the smaller end, but there are transactions that happen from the Starwoods of the world or the Blackstones of the world that happen on a billion-dollar basis. So they would look at an $80 million deal and say, yeah, that's kind of small scale. We don't really do that. It's too small for us to do. So I think it really just depends on the size of your business and where your comfort is. But for me, it's actually pretty much the same amount of work, whether I'm closing a $70 million deal versus a $20 million deal. And then once you get too small, you lose a lot of the economy of scale. So it actually gets a little bit tougher to close those like three and $5 million transactions, for example.
0: Okay. And and I want to get into your current investment criteria. So anyone who's thinking about maybe investing with your company and listening and like, wait a minute, like she's really like in this because when you say 50 million dollars like this is not like mom and pop type <laughs> deal so there may be someone listening who's like well how do i get involved in this and then of course with you seeking out capital and investors what's the criteria
1: yeah so we're actually pretty lucky in the sense that we overfund all of our deals so our investors are really loyal to us they invest in multiple projects with us and our investors really understand and know our business plan. So we're now at a point to where it's kind of a two-way street, right? Which is a really nice place to be at. We get an opportunity to interview our investors and see if they're a good fit for us, just as much as if we're a good fit for them and their portfolio. Our investment criteria, typically we're looking for a IRR and internal rate of return of anywhere from 12% on the low end to about 15% on the high end is what we're typically seeing. And that's net to the investor. Um, So that means after all fees and everything is paid out, that's what the investor can actually expect to realize into their account. The equity multiplier on funds invested is about, I'd say like 1.5 on the low end, 1.8 on the high end. Meaning if you put a hundred thousand dollars in, by the end of the project, you're looking at getting anywhere from 150 to $180,000 back in today's market. Now, this changes as market cycles change. So when we put investments and opportunities out, our numbers are always as conservative as possible for our investors so that there's room to improve. And we like to under-promise and over-deliver. Our buy criteria is we have select target markets that we look at. We also look at deals that are only really 100 units and up, but realistically, we're only looking at deals that are like 200 to 300 units and up. We look at deals that have a $50 million and up price point, but more importantly, they have to have a logical business plan that we can see and we know we can execute on. So we look for what's called a light value add or a moderate value add. We have no issue doing a deep value add, but then the returns have to be a little bit higher to commiserate with the risk that we would be taking on. So it really varies from project to project, but typically the cash on cash that you can expect to see, which is the annual cash flow from the deal. We look at anywhere from six to 8%, depending on the deal, that would be pretty standard, pretty usual for us to hit.
0: Vina, thank you so much for that. It sounds like you definitely have to have uh, a a lot of reserves and of course the emergency fund and assets to get involved in a deal like this. With myself being a financial educator and really big on finances, I'm over here and crunching numbers. And I'm like, this sounds like it could actually be a great return aside from Mm -hmm. investing in the stock market. Now, we talk about people who actually have this type of money, they tend to be high income earners, or maybe they have money from a trust fund or an estate. What advice would you give to them who are looking to invest in real estate?
1: Yeah. So first off disclaimer is that I am not a financial advisor. I have no licenses to give you any kind of professional advice. So I always tell people they should go back to their financial advisors, their CPAs, their attorneys, especially when they're considering making any kind of investment, but especially one that's in an alternative asset class such as multifamily. And I say that because there is risk in every single investment you make. If there wasn't risk, it wouldn't be called an investment and it's a risk adjusted return. So the more risk you take on, the more return you should theoretically generate. So as an example, if you're investing into new development, You probably are going to be looking at something from like 20, maybe 22, 25% IRRs, which is a great return, but that's because there's more inherent risk in development than there is in what I do, which is value add, which the return is anywhere from 12 to 15% IRR, as I said earlier. So my advice to investors that are considering investing into an alternative asset class is actually a few pieces of advice. One is rely on the people that have a fiduciary duty to you to decide whether this is a good fit for your portfolio. Yes, the returns are great, but this also means that you're taking on some amount of risk outside of the stock market. And what I like about real estate personally is one, it generates a different tax. I guess I should say like the tax benefits that are generated from real estate are a little bit better or more fruitful for me and for my personal portfolio. So you should definitely talk to your CPA about how real estate would affect your uh, tax implications. Secondly, I like real estate because it is not quite as volatile as the stock market. So you don't tend to see such large swings overnight the way you would potentially in a stock market. And third, this is a part of a diversification strategy, right? It should be that you are investing in real estate with X amount of percent dedicated to your risk tolerance in your portfolio versus putting all your eggs into one basket. No financial advisor would probably recommend that. But again, I'm not a financial advisor, so everybody's situation is very unique. You should go back to your financial advisors before deciding whether or not this makes sense for you. Now, the other thing I will add to that is Angel, you had mentioned that this is something for someone with a trust fund or high income earner. And yes, that is a lot of who invests with us. But we do see a lot of very solid earners or solidly middle income, middle class investors that have built up a portfolio over time and can meet accreditation status through net worth. For example, we do see a lot of those investors come into this asset class. But for us, we only accept accredited investors at this moment. And in the future, if we accept unaccredited but sophisticated investors, that's really time will tell. But as of right now, we only accept accredited investors into our deals.
0: Thank you so much, Bina. And I think there's one other thing to point out when we're talking about someone who's interested and getting into investments, they should also do some research on who they're investing with, right? 100%. I think that's totally important. Yes,
1: <laughs> so, 1,000, percent 1,
0: What should the new investor potentially be asking that deal sponsor? Yeah,
1: it's funny because there's just so much to know with these types of investments. And I see these investments that are marketed, which I think are actually very dangerous to be completely frank and transparent with you because if you are a passive investor and you don't play in this space, you might not know what you don't know, right? The questions that I like to ask sponsors are really more deep dives into who actually you're speaking with. Are you speaking to someone who is a sponsor or a GP or a fund manager? You want to know exactly what role they play in the deal. You want to understand how they're compensated in the deal. You can. There are ways to look up and verify their fund on the SEC website. It's called edgar.gov. There's a ton of research and questions that I think should go into uh, making a decision like this because of, again, the nature of the way these deals are structured. It's not entirely transparent. And sometimes it can be a little bit hard for passive investors to really understand what they're investing into. So I think that there's, a ton of different questions that can and should be asked. And most good sponsors are going to answer those questions either one-on-one or through their conference call or their offering memorandum should answer the vast majority of these questions. I know you and I spoke a little bit about, I, I put together a whole entire masterclass on how to passively invest in these types of deals because there's just so much knowledge to know and understand when you're making these types of investments. Well, that sounds really interesting. So I definitely
0: would like to give you a chance to talk more about the master class. There's so many things in real estate, again, so many things that you can do. And in the pre-show, I found out we have so much in common. Uh, We've Mm -hmm. both lived in Illinois. We both reside in Dallas right now. And Dallas has a very interesting real estate market, especially on the commercial side. And I've been here for a bit over 10 years. I paid attention to what's happening, especially the growth. I've lived in a few different areas. Dallas has just grown, but I have noticed one particular area, which is South Dallas, has not grown. It's grown to be more industrial, not more with multifamily, not more with the commercial real estate. And that puzzled me. I was like, what the heck is happening? I had an interest in real estate. And and another thing, you said your mother was in real estate. My mom's been in real estate for 20 years. She's a real estate broker in Illinois. And I said, I may want to get into real estate. Let me see what's happening and went through an entire commercial program. We had, I'd say some high power people coming into those classes from various commercial real estate companies and various trade organizations and really discussing the history of the Dallas real estate market and why certain parts have not been developed or reinvested in. And, And what I was told by a white male, say, well, we don't have a diverse group of people at the table to make those decisions. The people Mm -hmm. who are sitting at the table, he said, they look just like me. They've probably never lived in these areas. They're making assumptions and they're assuming that people in a certain part of town maybe don't have money. So they're not gonna put a nice shopping center there. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. With your experience and and really being in real estate and, and understanding like how important it is to show up not only as a woman, but as a minority and, and networking, how has that impacted your relationships and really understanding more? And I want to delve a, a bit deeper because it's a, such an interesting conversation.
1: Yeah, I think, oh gosh, this is like such a, this is such a big topic. And I think it's just such an important one that we talk about. So certainly being a woman in this space, I mean, I don't even know the last time I was in a room where I was not the only woman or only minority woman at that. But what I will say is I think that the more of us that are in this space, the better it is because even this deal and the last deal that I launched, I actually did it as a JV partnership with another minority woman led company, which is really exciting because it's rare to have one woman in the space, let alone two women leading these uh, deals. And we actually just launched a hundred million dollar fund together called Rev Fund, which is a real estate acquisition fund for multifamily, class B multifamily assets. But I think that the, the truth of the matter is when you're looking at development and I don't play in the development space, I very much am a one trick pony right now and focus really on the uh, multifamily value website at this moment. But when you're looking in the development space. What I think is tough is there is a lot of feasibility reports and studies that go into spending millions or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars even on assets. I think that typically when you look at the demographic reports and you look at the areas, it's very hard to pay for value of what could be versus what is there today. And I think that's why Certain pockets of DFW just aren't seeing the same amount of development dollars, not because there's so much like an opinion on what I think or what you think or what anybody thinks, but really that's what the demographic data is typically showing. We, we also pull demographic data from like a household income perspective on any of the assets we acquire because we want to know what the top dollar our potential tenants could afford in rent. Because if they can't afford the price that we want to charge in order for our numbers to work, then it doesn't really make sense for us to move forward because we can charge what we want all day long. But if we can't get it, then it's just going to be a occupancy issue for us as operators. So there's a fine balance between knowing what you can charge, knowing who your tenants are, and also knowing what the potential lies in the uh, deal
0: itself. Thank you so much for all of the clarification. And demographics definitely make sense, especially when you're pulling the data and you're seeing if is your target market in this area for for this luxury apartment, or if you're doing a renovation and you're wanting to increase the rent to X amount of dollars. So uh, it definitely makes sense. So appreciate it. So another question I have as far as you starting your company. Now, let's go back to your why. Everyone always has their why of why you're passionate about something, why you did something. And I I know earlier in the show, we talked about your family really being involved in real estate, but what was like
1: that breaking point where you said, this is it, I'm going out on my own. it was actually um, the first year that my husband and I paid joint taxes because I was a W-2, I was working for somebody else. I had, I didn't have full-time real estate status. Now, obviously I work like a hundred hours a week. So I meet those qualifications and it's just been really tax beneficial for us since then. So that was actually the catalyst. The reason why I do this though today is not so much for the money. For me, it's actually one, it's a passion. I absolutely love what I do. But two, going back to having women at the table, I have twin toddler daughters. so. It's really important to me that they see people that look like them that are in these spaces and that they know that they are not limited by what anybody else tells them that they want to do. For me, that was like really important. So for me, it's more of a legacy that I want to leave behind for my kids than anything else. I love that.
0: Absolutely. You have to let children know there's no glass ceiling, especially young girls. Exactly about the last 30 minutes discussing all of you and all of your company. Tell us something about you that most people don't know.
1: Oh, okay. This is a good question. Do you want it to be something professional or something quirky? Because It can quirky
0: be whatever you want to put out there. <laughs> I'd say
1: that. Okay, let's see. I mean, I'm like kind of an open book, so really I don't mind putting much of anything out there, but let's see. Okay. So I, well, anybody that's like in my closer inner circle knows that I am Totally a foodie. I will travel to eat at good places. So my husband and I have like taken trips before, just entirely centered around a restaurant that we heard was good in another state. I will travel anywhere for good food. That is hilarious because I am also a foodie. <laughs> yes, oh, so good. So if you,
0: if you lived in Chicago, then you know about Portillo's and Giordano's oh, and yeah. they, they ship, Giordano's ships their pizza, Portillo's will ship their, their Italian beef. Yeah, oh I mean, you know, the, my gosh. <laughs> so yes, definitely, definitely. And Garrett's popcorn. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, yes, all about the food. Of course, with me being more on the financial side and really honing in on finances, My entire brand is centered around this phrase, balling on a budget. Mm -hmm. And I know that phrase has been around for years. It's been around since the 90s, and which I can remember. I don't want to date myself, but (laughs) it's been around since the 90s. And when I started to brand myself in this financial literacy space, I was, I remember being on live stream one day and I said, We're going to have balling on a budget Wednesdays. And it turned into a workbook. And now it's a part of my brand. And there's shirts and there's masks and there's all of these different items for, pur- for purchase, but I like to ask my guests, what does the phrase balling on a budget mean to you?
1: Oh gosh. Okay. I actually really love this because despite how much money we make or anytime we like make more money than we did the year before, I'm like always frugal at heart. So I am totally that person that my like friends or my sister will like yell at me for being so penny pinching because they're like, your time isn't worth the amount of effort you spent. So I'm the person when I go to like Best Buy and I'm buying like a new fridge for my house, even though I want like the super fancy fridge. I I don't know if you know this, but you can negotiate with them there. So I definitely do that. At Best Buy, they're like, we don't really do that. I'm like, but don't you? And then I'll spend time like negotiating. My husband thinks it's like so obnoxious. He's like, I'm not going with you anymore. (laughs) But for me, it's the thrill of being able to get that deal. And I always figure that if you don't ask, the answer is always going to be no. But if you at least ask, then sometimes you're going to get a yes. So For me, it is really making sure you're living well within your means. And even then, just always being like conscious of where you can save a few dollars because it does add up. Oh, absolutely. I'm a big outlet shopper.
0: And I always say, no matter how much money I earn, I'm not paying full price. (laughs) Oh, I definitely understand. Vina, this has been such a great conversation on investing in real estate. And I definitely would like to give you a chance to talk to our listeners and let them know more about your masterclass you have coming up and where can they find you on social media?
1: Yeah. So my masterclass, it launches in cycles. So it's called, uh, the multifamily masterclass, super creative name. I know, but, uh, it's just at mfmasterclass.com. So MF like multifamily masterclass.com. And in it, it's a six-week course. There's over 100 videos um, going really into detail about different terminologies. So you can speak to investors or sponsors in a very knowledgeable way. And you should leave there feeling comfortable enough to discuss different investments, what they look like and make a good decision for your portfolio. There's also a live component. So we do a weekly happy hour, which has been a lot of fun. And there's also like worksheets and stuff like that. And then we post updates and it's an evergreen course. So once you buy it, you'll always have access to the videos, including the updates. And if you want to find me, you can find me pretty much anywhere on social media under Vina Jetty. I spend a lot of time on Clubhouse, but you know, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm on all of them. So you can definitely find me online. I hang out in a lot of the different financial groups online, so you'll find me there as well. But if you want to just look at our investments or get an idea for our company, vivefunds.com, V-I-V-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. There's a portal button in the top right corner. You can always sign up for our portal so you can take a look at our investments. You can set up a call to speak with me one-on-one. But yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much everywhere if you look for me. <laughs> Thank you so
0: much. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope everyone who's been listening has been taking notes. Reach out to Vina for any questions, and especially if you'd like to invest with her
1: company. So, Vina, <laughs> any last words? No, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I appreciate it. Thanks
0: for listening. Stay connected with Angel online on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss R-M-B-A. That's M-I-S-S-R-M-B-A. Be sure to subscribe and review. Join us next time as we continue to empower you through milestones, motivation, and money.